You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. Hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 82 of Common Descent. This episode, Trilobites. About time. Yeah, right? Well, we don't, you don't want to rush something like Trilobites. No. That's, we, this is something you savor. The, yeah, you, you, you let it age. <laughs> if you are unfamiliar, Trilobites are some of the most famous fossils of all time. They're almost always in a picture if we're talking about the history of the world or something. Trilobites are extinct arthropods. So they are animals with exoskeletons in the same giant group as crabs and centipedes and insects and spiders and scorpions and such. They are entirely extinct. They are some of the most common and most diverse extinct organisms. They are super famous. You know, most of the time, invertebrates in the fossil record, the famous ones are usually famous for an invertebrate group. Yeah, no. Like Eurypterids, the sea scorpions, are famous for an invertebrate. But if you just... The griffin flies of the yeah, carbon... But there's not a lot of t-shirts. Right. It's hard for invertebrates to rise up to, like, dinosaur levels or even, you know, Ice Age mammal levels. It, we're biased toward things with bones. We are very biased. This is a bias that is exhibited very clearly by this very podcast. Yeah. But trilobites are, like, vertebrate levels of famous. Yes. They are very, very famous animals. We're going to talk about... What makes them unique? We're going to talk about what they did throughout their extremely long history. Very successful. We're going to talk a bunch about what their lifestyle was like in as far as we know. And this episode was requested. Yeah. By three of our patrons, Lydia, Nils, and Bob. All with excellent taste. And Rebecca. And our other patron, Cheryl, made a request specifically for agnostids. Oh. Now, agnostids are a group of extinct arthropods that are a group of trilobites, except maybe they're not a group of trilobites, so maybe they're closely related to trilobites, but maybe they're not actually closely related to trilobites at all. So, based on Cheryl's request, we will dedicate a section at the end of this episode to talking about what I saw one paper, a recent paper, describe as the agnostid problem. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, we will talk a bit about agnostids for Cheryl. But before we get to that, a couple of quick announcements. As has been the case for a long time, we have a Patreon. Yes. And our Patreon is full of wonderful patrons who generously contribute to the podcast and allow us to do all sorts of cool stuff like support the podcast hosting online, travel to conferences and Dragon Con. Uh, earlier this year, we were able to make a big donation to help out our friends over in Australia mm -hmm. with the ecological crises going on. Thanks to generous donations from our patrons. As many thanks as we can give. And in return, our patrons get fun bonus content, behind the scenesy kind of stuff. And if you are a patron above a certain level, we will thank you by name here on the podcast. I'll demonstrate. <laughs> this time, thank you and welcome to Jason and Sria. Welcome. Thank you so much for being part of this Baskin Coil. Yes. <laughs> Speaking of scientific conferences, 
We are both located in East Tennessee, hanging out at our favorite place, the Gray Fossil Site. Yep. And in April of this year, the Gray Fossil Site will be hosting this year's meeting of the Association for Materials and Methods in Paleontology. Yeah. This is a prep conference. So it's not, you know, most when we talk about SVP, episode 17, and others like that, those are usually mostly dedicated to research on fossils, studying the past, with side segments that are about museum methods and lab methods and stuff like that. AMP is predominantly how do you handle fossils, how do you store fossils, how do you treat fossils, all that kind of information, which is very cool. So we are both going to be there for AMP for at least part of it. So if you're going to AMP, it's not a huge conference. It's not SVP size. It's it's smaller. But if you're going to be at AMP, you keep an eye out for us, and you might be able to spot us and say hi. Yeah, I hope to see some of you there. And maybe we'll do some reporting on what happens at AMP. Maybe we'll, we'll, we'll bring some of it to people one way or another. <laughs> and I think that's all for now. In terms of announcements. Sounds good. Which means we can move on to phase two. The news. The news. Every episode, we like to talk about some of the news that has caught our eye recently from the world of paleontology, evolutionary science, and related stuff. Keeps you up to date. Keeps us up to date. People seem to like it. That's how dad did it. That's how America does it. And it's worked out pretty well so far. So... <laughs> That's an Iron Man reference. I'm not just being jingoistic. Yeah. <laughs> well, what have you brought to the table on the news desk today? I have some fun news about gliding animals. Oh, I like this already. Yeah, and they're surprisingly weird evolutionary trends. Ooh, some of my favorite animals are gliders. Yeah. So this is research by Terry Ord et al. And it's in The American Naturalist. The article, uh, the press release, is by the University of Chicago and phys.org. And this is focusing on two particular gliding animals, the gliding dragon lizard, the Draco lizard. Still and, alive today. Yeah. And the flying squirrel. Also still alive so today. Both modern, but it's looking at the trends in evolutionary diversity among these gliding groups. Uh, because gliding is not new, at least not... In these groups, most of the research seems to suggest that uh, many of these groups started gliding 20-ish, 30-ish million years ago. Okay. Probably to escape predators and stuff like that, to, to be more mobile among the trees. And while this gave them advantages, it does not seem that they followed the same trends as similar adaptations, say flying. When we saw flying evolve in many groups, which we've discussed Many of those groups. Absolutely. <laughs> episode 6 was the evolution of flight. Yeah. And then episode 37 for birds and 59 for bats and 79 for pterosaurs and insects pending, I yes. guess. <laughs> <laughs> in almost all of those, you see a huge increase in diversity after flight is evolved. You know, like flight suddenly becomes this just game changer for the animals. Right. Not so much so with gliding. Evidently, when they looked at uh, these two specifics, the Draco lizards or the flying dragons and the flying squirrels, they found that they didn't seem to have a boost in diversity and are not crazily diverse today. And there's a few reasons why they think gliding versus flying did not have the same effect. And it's that gliding mechanically is very different. 
than flying is because it's not powered. It is very reliant on the size of the animal's body. And as you increase your size, you need to increase the surface area of your gliding surface, but you don't get to add any power to it. So as you increase size and weight, you become a less and less efficient glider hmm. the whole way. So you're, you have a size restriction, a very, you know, strict size restriction for the most part. So you're not allowed really to just all of a sudden have these giant gliders because then you're not going to glide very far if you, you know, weigh 10 pounds. So this seems to have limited their evolutionary diversity. Uh, they even noted that with some of the flying dragons that there have been individuals that have gotten evolved larger bodies and lessened the gliding aspects. Yeah, they've reduced that feature. They, they've reduced that feature, and they've kind of readapted more toward flattening against tr trees to hide. Hmm, interesting. And so they're almost leaving that gliding behavior for larger size, and that seems to be more in competition with other lizards than just the benefits of big size. So you don't see that in the gliding lizards, the squirrels are different in that because they're not stretching their ribs out like the lizard and they're stretching skin between their arms and legs, they can get bigger because you just get longer arms and legs and you get more gliding surface. And there are giant flying squirrels there today. are. But the diversity of flying squirrels is no more notable than other rodent groups. So even though they have this crazy mobility to glide between the trees... It still hasn't had the flight boon. And the point that the researchers wanted to make is that often there is the mentality that when a new innovation in evolution arises, it is followed by a burst in adversity. And that that is a very common trend that it is often assumed happens. And these are both instances that show that not necessarily. That's interesting. And the more you talk about it, the more... It fits yeah. in my brain. Because I'm thinking, I, you, believe it or not, I'm thinking snakes. <laughs> and in snakes, there is one genus that glides, mm -hmm. Chrysopelea. And I think there are six species, like four or six species. It's not very many. No. They have not diversified. And when you were talking about the, the different sizes and diversity and gliding, I was thinking birds and pterosaurs, which have... As we discussed recently in episode 79, pterosaurs had small flappers and big soaring ones and ones that navigated through the trees and ones that probably lived shorelines and others. And that without powered flight, you can't achieve, I would think, those different flight styles. Yeah. I would imagine you're sort of limited to being able to do pretty much just the one thing of gliding between trees well, it's, with it, li different amounts of maneuverability, yeah. I suppose. It makes me think of uh, if anyone out there as a kid was like me and tried to make a paper airplane out of a newspaper or something, and it just doesn't work. Partially because the paper's floppy, but also like it doesn't hold up to the resistances of the wind, and it's way too heavy compared to the normal paper, in that you can't use one thing that works uh, uh, within physics a certain way and then just scale it up and expect it to keep working. Yeah. Because physics doesn't quite scale. 
I wonder if there's also a competitive aspect to it, because gliding is way easier to evolve yeah. than flying, or at least it would seem based on how many animals have done it. Yes. So maybe each new group of gliders just isn't differentiated enough niche-wise from the frogs and the lizards and the rodents that are all doing similar things? Yeah. Or maybe yeah. gliding's a cool thing, but not that much more beneficial than just being really good at jumping or something. Right. Maybe it's just not that cool. Yeah. Like, it looks really <laughs> cool and it sounds really cool, but really you're just, you're falling with style. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> That's a really interesting, I, I, I like the point of this is a cool new feature that isn't associated with diversification. Yes. Interesting. I, now I'm curious to know, to see somebody look into extinct gliders. Yes. Uh, the Triassic was full of them. They and they were also, they, they seemed like one-offs. Mm -hmm. A handful of different groups that glided, and then they had a few members, and then that was it. It's beneficial enough to happen a bunch, but may not be the same beneficial, uh, or benefits as actually flying. Very cool. Well, my first bit of news is not about the development of new features, but the reduction of old features and how it can confuse evolutionary understanding. Fun. Fitting for this episode, this is research of an early Cambrian worm-like creature that has long been mysterious, and a new study seems to have resolved some of the controversy around its identification. This is research by Richard Howard et al. in Current Biology, and we'll link to an article in New Scientist by Michael Marshall. The wormy thing in question is named Falsivermis unanicus, it dates back to around 518 million years old, early Cambrian, so way back at the beginning of the Paleozoic, from the famous Chengjiang fauna in the Yunnan province of China. This is a time period where we have a lot of things sort of on the tail end of the Cambrian explosion, episode 9, and so all sorts of diverse body forms, some of which are early representatives of familiar groups, Others are cousins of those groups. Others are ancestral to those groups. And so there's a lot of animals that are hard to classify within these ecosystems. Falsivermis is a, like I said, a worm-like long body, but under 10 centimeters, so not large. Noted for five pairs of spiny arms on the front of the body, a long body behind them, and then what is referred to as a swollen posterior section. <laughs> so sort of thicker and more bulbous toward the bottom. A badonk. Arms up front, thick toward the back. Scientists have gone back and forth for a very long time on what this creature is, because it doesn't quite seem to match with other things. Suggestions have included that it is related to annelids, which are your segmented worms like earthworms, Lophophorates, which include things like brachiopods and bryozoans, a group called the pentastomids, which are a type of crustacean, or ancestral lobopods. And a lobopod, or lobopodians, are an early group that ultimately gives rise to arthropods, tardigrades, and velvet worms. So it's, are they part of these groups over here? Are they related to these groups? Are they an ancestor of the big arthropod and their cousin groups? There has been lots of debate. In this study, the authors present a new material, new finds, and reanalysis of some old material. I believe the paper said that they looked at 30 total specimens 
uh, I think. Something like that. And among the new analysis, they described a bunch more features and they described some more detail on the, the traits of the animal, which is helpful for comparison. And they noticed two features of note. One, paired eyes up front, which is a handy thing to notice. And the other is that it, several of the fossils are preserved within the sediment. These are soft-bodied creatures. Two of the specimens they studied, they noticed that the sediment surrounding part of their body formed a tube. Uh. A sediment tube, which we see in modern-day animals like tube worms. Mm-hmm. And it looks like these were dwelling in tubes, sticking their front end out of the tube with their arms waving around to catch food, which is a, a neat ecological discovery. And then they went ahead and ran a new phylogenetic analysis. Based on all this new traits uh, from all these new materials, where do they fall out when we computer computer analyze and tell us what it's related to? And what they found is that they were part of the Lobopodia, so that big group of arthropods, tardigrades, velvet worms, that whole big thing, but not in the ancestral realm, not early, early members of it, but later, more derived relatives close to Onycophora, which are the velvet worms. Not necessarily a velvet worm, but something close to it. Yeah, yeah, more, more closely related. So... Not an ancestral member of the group, but a more derived, so a more advanced, quote unquote, you know, further down an evolutionary lineage than first suspected. And if that's true, then one of the things that makes them very different and that kind of confuses this comparison is that all the other animals we know of in that group have hind legs. These worms don't. Which suggests that these worms, the weren't quote unquote worms, lost their hind legs as they developed that tube dwelling habit. In which case, that means two things. Number one, according to the, the article, this is among the oldest examples of the secondary loss of body parts. Oh, cool. That loss of something. And we've talked about, you know, snakes have lost their limbs, whales have lost limbs. This is one of the oldest examples of that. And the fact that they reduced their limbs made them look like they were earlier members of their group than they actually were. I like that because it makes sense with, like, the first idea that came to my head were cephalopods and, you know, octopus and squid uh, compared to other mollusks, all the other shellfish. Because if you just showed those to me without me knowing what any of them are, it could very easily seem like, well, yeah, they started out with no shell. And then evolved shells, and then those became the successful thing. Right, right. So yeah. the Nautilus would be the advanced, right? The yeah. derived, later uh, developing version. Because most of the mollusks have shells, and only this one group of weirdos doesn't, so probably it started out that way. <laughs> and so it, it makes sense how it can very easily seem like something so bizarre compared to the group must be ancestral, because it's, it's missing stuff. Yes. But... Yeah, but it might have just gotten rid of it. And that's really, really cool. Yeah, and, I, you know, there is a special little place in my heart for animals that evolutionarily <laughs> reduce their limbs. I, you know, I just have a, it's just something about them. I just like them a lot. I feel a kinship. <laughs> I was thinking of having some of mine removed. 
Well, I don't have a news about animal reducing its limbs, but I do have one that's uh, aptly misnamed, but still very cool. Okay. So if that's anybody's jam, jam wheelhouse <laughs> yeah. bag, baby. <laughs> <laughs> This bit of news is about uh, a new type of Australian lion, which are, is not a lion, but a cool marsupial predator. Right. As we've discussed probably a few times. Yeah, almost every time it comes up. Certainly in episode 70 about conversion evolution, that marsupials have done many of the things that placental mammals also did. And as placental mammals, we name them after other placental mammals. Right. The marsupial lion instead of just... Lion. Yeah. <laughs> this is a new identification for a previously discovered uh, marsupial lion. That is an interesting individual for its size and what it also tells us about the evolution of this group of marsupial predators. So this is research by Anna Gillespie et al. in the Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology. And the article is by Kelly Butterworth in ABC News. In Australia, at the Riverslee site, which dates about 23 million years old, there is a marsupial lion, which the famous individual, some of you might know, Thylaco Leo, is part of this group. That mm. famous one with the big thumb claws and those big buck teeth and slicing cheek teeth. Well, this is a member of that overall group that is a particularly small member, but still has those... Very notable premolars and molars. Those shearing cheek teeth. That they, as they described, bolt cutting. Oh, jeez. <laughs> premolars. Yeah, yeah, that's more apt. <laughs> that they said would have been able to slice through bone. Ooh. Yeah. This individual came back up in the news because it had been grouped within the Priscilio genus and has now been regrouped in a new genus as they've noticed it more distinct features. So now it is Lacanileo Roskellie. When I mentioned it was small, it was very small. Like house cat small. Wow. This is one of the smallest of the thylacoleids. Wow, so it's like the the, the small cats to the big cats of the mm -hmm. placental world. Yeah. That marsupials also had both. Yes, and so very, very small and gives us some understanding about the the these marsupial lions. There's, I don't have another lane other than <laughs> thylacoleonids. <laughs> Started out as very tiny animals and then increased in size. Makes sense. Because the, the largest individuals were big cat size. They were large predators. So it gives us a bit of information about their evolution, but also the site that Leo is the nickname for this this specimen. Naturally. Uh, yep. The Riversley site also gives a lot of information about how Australia has changed because the time at which Leo would have been around, like Anna Leo, everything was much more diverse. The Thylacoleonids were much more diverse. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good name. And the ecosystems in Australia were more diverse than they are now. This site gives a good window to the decline in diversity that Australia has experienced since that time. And that continent-wide, the diversity has been steadily declining as it, aridity has been rising. And this site is 
been very useful to add more information to that. I'm sure there'll be more dedicated studies to that. They, they mentioned it here. That's a really interesting finding. It's always cool to see trends repeating. Yes. And that in mammals, especially small to large is a very common trend to see. But I had never thought of it with the cool marsupial things. Yeah. That, oh, yeah, no, it makes perfect sense that the marsupial lions and such would have started out as marsupial bobcats. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's still, and it still has those wacky back teeth. Yes, which is why it, it initially got placed in the, the existing genus was because it had the very recognizable features, but upon closer examination, it does have some distinct ones and is notably tiny. Very cool. Well, it's just a, a, a cool continent to study the past on. Seriously. Keep it up, Australia. <laughs> well, if my first bit of news was about a new study that resolves a long-standing controversy, my next bit of news might be the most controversial thing that we've ever had in the news. Gotta keep those scales on, balanced. On the podcast. <laughs> uh, this is dino DNA. Oh, boy. Kinda. Sort of, maybe. This is research by Alita Bayul et al. in National Science Review. And we're going to link to two different articles on this one. I'm going to link to one in National Geographic by Michael Greshko, which is kinder to this study than the <laughs> other one, which is by George Dvorsky and Gizmodo, which includes much more criticism and, and rebuttal from a critic. It's, it's so notable when a more heavily debated topic gets covered in how it gets covered. <laughs> a reminder on ancient DNA. We talked about ancient DNA in episode 34. DNA, the oldest DNA that we have ever found, is about 700,000 years old, a horse in Siberia. DNA is not thought to be able to persist beyond about a million years based on more recent studies. But there has been a procession in the last several years of studies finding that protein material might be able to survive longer than we thought yes. and cellular material might be able to survive longer than we thought. This study took a very close look at skull bones from a dinosaur named Hypacrosaurus from specifically nestling member individuals cool so little babies that's awesome these are little herbivorous well they're not little but these were very little yes herbivorous dinosaurs from the famous two medicine formation of montana so dating back to around 75 million years ago late cretaceous they took thin sections of the skull and looked inside and found what appeared to be cell-like structures in calcified cartilage so the cartilage had become mineralized and, and, and hardened and preserved. Which is very neat. Yes, it is. And they saw what looked like cells, cell shapes, which is not unusual. We've seen cell-like structures and other things. Well, it's unusual, but we've seen cell-like structures elsewhere. Of. Um, there have been osteocytes, so bone cells found, identified in other dinosaur bones. These appear to be chondrocytes, which are cells that produce cartilage and then become embedded in the matrix of the cartilage they're producing. Some of the cells even appear to have been caught in the process of splitting, like mitotically splitting, and taking a look inside the cells, the researchers identified 
very, very tiny subcellular blobs that looked like they might be the nucleus of a cell, and in some of them, tangled coils that looked like chromosomes. You're saying all the right words. So the nucleus is the, the heart of the cell, right? The center of the cell where yeah. genetic material is stored. It's the, the mainframe. And the genetic material comes grouped in chromosomes, these strands of DNA. Tightly, tightly coiled strands of DNA. So intrigued by these, they did some chemical tests. So the way that you, you people will test for the presence of certain chemicals is to put other chemicals that are supposed to bind to them. Mm -hmm. So you can do this with immune chemicals. You can do this with stains. They made chemical tests to test for the presence of cartilage proteins and found it. They, their, their tests bound to something, mm -hmm. which suggests that there were cartilage proteins. And they only saw it in the cartilage parts, not in the bone parts. And they used two chemical stains that specifically bind to DNA. And in the two chemical stains, they bound to the cells in a way that is very similar to the way they bind to DNA in living cells. They compared it with modern cells. Mm -hmm. So as... Uh, so this, this is research. You, you, people who are familiar with this kind of research will not be surprised to hear that Mary Schweitzer is part of this. Uh, Mary Schweitzer is has made a very big name for herself in this sort of pioneering field of identifying proteins and ancient organic material in very old dinosaur age stuff. The way that Mary puts it in one of the articles is that this is evidence for the presence of material that is chemically consistent with DNA inside these chondrocyte-like structures. Which is a very science way to say a thing. Something in these cells is being bound to by these stains. And these stains are only known to bind to DNA. If it, it, it basically, it's quacking and walking. <laughs> Something chemically consistent with DNA. But of course, that's, you know, is it DNA? That would make sense, given what we're seeing. But also, that would be an enormous deal. Yes, that is huge. That's a big deal because that would be the oldest known DNA. Because these are 75 million year old fossils, that would be the oldest DNA by about 75 million years. Yeah. Now, this has come under criticism, naturally, because it's a big claim. Yep. In Gizmodo, the article that we'll link to, there are a bunch of comments from another researcher who studies ancient protein type stuff. Uh, named Evan Saita, who is, I should note, a common critic of the work that comes out of Schweitzer's group the, yes. their, and colleagues. In fact, this scientist is the one who I, I feel like I see quoted most often when journalists need somebody to offer a, a conflicting viewpoint yep. to counterbalance. Saita points out, of course, that this kind of thing can be caused by contamination, mm -hmm. that you might be binding to DNA in microbes, not authentic DNA in the fossil. Although the authors of the paper are very clear in that they followed procedures to avoid contamination. Criticism also points out that the tests they're using are known to produce false positives sometimes. Now, the National Geographic article also has at least one other ancient protein researcher who is more favorable toward these claims. So it's not totally 
cut and dry one person against the other. And there are other studies that have made similar claims. Yes. There are other studies that have claimed ancient proteins. Uh, I think we may have talked about a, a study that looked at biomarkers in an Ediacaran fossil, Dickinsonia. Oh, right. Yeah. And then there was a study in 2014 that I did not know this was a thing uh, that claimed to find chromosomes in a Jurassic fern, like morphological structures similar to chromosomes. And that's more than twice the age of this. Yes. So it's not unheard of. And then again, the critics argument is that these kinds of things uh, suffer a lack of corroboration. And that there have been other studies on protein degradation that suggest that these are probably not accurate and there's probably something wrong there. But then, of course, on the other hand, Schweitzer and colleagues have been producing what appear to be pretty well substantiated claims repeatedly for a while. Saita in the Gizmodo article is not mincing words. (laughs) Like, (laughs) he's being very uh, firm in not accepting these results. But then in the Nat Geo article, there's a bunch of people who are excited about it. If this is DNA, if this is truly evidence of super ancient DNA, it raises the question of how it preserved way past what we would expect. And I just want to make a pause that it does not raise the question of can we Jurassic Park? No, it doesn't. Just want to make sure that wasn't the question he was leading toward. It's the correct question no. of how did it happen and i'll jump to the, 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 the to the end here but there are two answers to that one is the way that the stains bind suggests that these are very small segments of dna if it's dna mm-hmm. which would be no more than a several base pairs which is too small for sequencing mm-hmm. and also go to episode 35 and 34 yes. <laughs> for why we can't jurassic park <gasps> if this is evidence of of cretaceous dna how The authors suggest two potential answers for maybe what is different about these. One is that it might be that cartilage is particularly good at protecting cellular structures. They point out that bone is porous and cartilage is not. Oh, good point. So it could be better sealed away. Yeah. And they also point out that these cells that they see these structures in have features consistent with cells that are at the end of their life cycle. So dying cells. And they point out that in dying cells, the genetic material often becomes highly condensed. So it could be that these cells were at a stage in their life where the genetic material was in a condensed state and then sealed away in the cartilage. And maybe that provides the unique circumstances to allow for preservation of genetic material far beyond what we would expect. That, ooh, that, that's like a, a, an extreme Goldilocks zone of yes. fossilization conditions. So maybe cartilage is the place to look to corroborate these findings. Other scientists who are quoted in the articles, even the ones who are like, this is super cool, that, that this would be really exciting, suggest more testing, of course, will be needed. Try a variety of chemical tests, test for the kinds of false, misleading results that critics might be pointing out, that can we correct for all of the variables. This is a big one. Mm -hmm. If that's genetic material, that's a big, cool deal. Yes. And for what it's worth, I am not inclined to just write it off. Yeah. 
there's been a lot of cool stuff discovered recently, and at least from what I've seen, Schweitzer and Co. seem to be doing some pretty good studies showing results that seem to be fairly convincing, uh, not just for me, but also for people who know even more than I do about yeah. this kind of stuff. So uh, I'm I'm very interested to mm-hmm. see where this topic leads. Well, and I like this also because it gives you a glimpse at how you know paradigm shifting theories and discoveries happen, and that they don't just boom we found dinosaur DNA and now you got to deal with it. Right. It's we think we found proteins. Ah, oh, maybe not. We think we found some more proteins, and like. <laughs> Every time there is, it's, it doesn't convince everyone, but if you find 50 of those discoveries, well, that starts to get a little more convincing. And that's kind of what may be happening with this stuff. And that's cool to get to watch. It's an exciting time. Yeah. Well, that's the news. We'll leave you on that enticing note and move on. Cliffhanger. uh, Cliffhanger. Yes. (laughs) Yes. We'll see. Find out next time. And with that, why don't we go ahead and make our way over to the main discussion after this short break and talk about something much more familiar and certain in the fossil record, trilobites. As we mentioned before, Trilobites are extremely famous, extremely common, extremely diverse in the fossil record. One of the things they're most famous for is how famous they are. <laughs> Many of our listeners, if, you've, if you're into fossils and stuff, you've probably seen a trilobite. They are marine arthropods. So arthropods, the same broad group as crustaceans and insects and, and arachnids. Jointed bodies with exoskeletons. And what's super cool about trilobites is that they're not, they are an entirely extinct group. So they're not quite like anything we have in the world today, though there are some things similar. What, what, Will, what are your favorite comparisons? The one that I go with most often are isopods. Right, right. So like pill bugs, pill bugs. roly polies, potato bugs, whatever yeah. you individual people out there call them. Yeah, the giant undersea isopods that are like a foot and a half long. Right. So these are segmented exoskeleton yeah. creatures with many legs underneath. They, so they, they've got a very similar body design. Like it, there's definitely some convergence going on mm-hmm. and they're that rolling up behavior is not alien to either group. Right. Uh, and they both have that, at least seemingly bottom feeding, bottom dwelling, scurrying along their environment. So that's usually the one I use to try to give people an idea of what what we're talking about. Right. And I see, I think those are the most common comparison I see among researchers. Yeah. I also see them compared to horseshoe crabs. Horseshoe crabs. Sometimes. And that's, it's, there's a similar, that sort of broad head and armored back, armored back spikiness mm-hmm. on them. Trilobites are isopod-like, kind of horseshoe crab-like. We'll discuss a bit more about their anatomy. It, it makes it tricky to discuss them sometimes because you don't have that nice comparison of like, well, this animal today is actually a cousin of them. Right. You, know, you don't yeah, no, have trilobites. That. Yeah, it's, it's trilobites. <laughs> 
you don't know any of them. <laughs> so at this point, dear listeners, if you don't have a picture in your head of a trilobite, pause the podcast. <laughs> Take out your phone or your computer or whatever. Google trilobite. You've probably seen them. They are very popular imagery. Look them up. They are this, even though they're extinct, extremely successful group of ancient invertebrates. Trilobites show up in the early Cambrian, right at the Cambrian explosion when all the major groups are popping up, and they persist all the way across the Paleozoic to the end of the Permian period. During that time, they are extremely diverse. I've read multiple resources that say that trilobites have been identified, classified into around 10 different orders for a total of over 20,000 identified species. Wow! For comparison, I think there are a little more than 1,000 identified dinosaurs. Yeah! Extinct dinosaurs. Modern snakes number about 3,000. That's like, that That was what I, 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 the first thought that came to my mind when you said that is, that's like a modern taxa level of. Yeah, of like a modern species. invertebrate taxa yeah. level. Wow. They come in a, this incredible variety of shapes and sizes and environments, which was a bit of a surprise to me to learn how diverse they were. And they are extremely common as fossils. And the reason why is tied into their anatomy. And indeed, what makes trilobites very unique, and even where they get their name, from their unique anatomy. Like other arthropods, trilobites have an exoskeleton, a protective hard outer body bit. In their case, calcified. So made of calcium carbonate, similar to things like clams and other marine invertebrates that have calcification. Which means, like a lot of exoskeleton animals, they fossilize beautifully because they are already made of minerals. <laughs> so it makes them very easily fossilizable, unlike soft, squishy things. Indeed, trilobites are among the earliest animals to achieve hard body parts and among the earliest diverse animals to do it, which is why they've been famous for a long time as showing up in great diversity way, way back in the geologic record. Yeah, one of the one of the first big widespread successful groups, you know, like like uh, categories of animal. Yes, and a wide successful group that fossilized well. Yeah. Unlike all those wacky Ediacaran things, episode thirty one. Yeah, I'm sure there's there's some group in there that puts trilobites to shame. And we've never seen them. That we just <laughs> we have like two fossils of. Trilobites' backs are covered by this protective exoskeleton shield. Underneath of which is a belly with legs, which are uncalcified. Okay. The legs are not calcified. So like in crabs and lobsters and such, they have hard-shelled limbs. Mm -hmm. Trilobites did not. So we don't typically find leg fossils. Weird. Now I'm picturing like the swimmerettes on the underside of a a lobster or a shrimp. Those little fluttery flipper bits that are much softer than the rest of the exoskeleton. But these were for walking. Yeah. These were walking legs. Oh, that's so weird. Now we do have, because trilobites are so common and there's so many of them, plenty of good soft tissue specimens that have taught us about legs and other soft body parts. One of the things that all trilobites share, the thing that gives them their name, is that they are three-lobed 
animals. Now, I don't mean body segments, like the head, the the thorax, and the tail kind of thing. The lobes are across side to side. In the middle of the body, there is a lobe that runs from the head down the body in the center that is the axial lobe. And then on either side are the pleural lobes. And that just means that if you look at the head, there's a center bulbous bit, and then there's two bits off to the side. Same thing all the way down the body. Central lobe, left and right lobe. They are also split into three body segments, front to back. So the three bits, the three parts of a trilobite, are up front, the cephalon, which is the head. It's where its eyes are. It Antennae, yeah. which we know from soft body, soft tissue specimens. The hypostome, which is a calcified piece on, underneath the head near the mouth. That kind of supports mouth function, which we'll talk more about later. The cephalon also has the front legs attached to the head. Oh. Unlike something like insects, where it's just in the thorax segment. Yeah. And in many trilobites, there are spines coming off the cephalon. Only what spines? Sticking forward, going backwards, going upwards. Sometimes all at once. Sometimes all of those things. <laughs> one of my favorite trilobites in the world is, I think it's Wallacerops, mm-hmm. which is the one with a trident sticking out of its cephalon. Because it's the most like Aquaman. Because it's the most like Aquaman. <gasps> <laughs> Behind the cephalon is the thorax, which is made up of multiple articulating segments. So if you think of like an armadillo. Yes. How you've got... Uh, this sort of banding with different segments that can move relative to each other. Each segment has one pair of legs, so there's more legs running down the thorax, and many thoraxes have spines coming <laughs> off of them, sometimes to the sides, sometimes off the top. Um, they, were, the, they were big fans of the punk movement. Yeah. <laughs> the plural lobes of the thorax are sometimes elongated into spines, so sticking out to the sides. And then the third piece at the end is the pygidium, or pygidium. I'm going to say pygidium. The tail bit, which is made up of several fused segments. So it's sort of like, it's kind of like a tailbone in us, where it's several fused vertebrae. It's several fused segments. The pygidium, pygidium, also has legs. Really? And spines sometimes <laughs> that stick straight back or in all directions. Because when you said three segments, it took me a second to go, where's the third one? Yep. Yeah, a little tail segment. That, now I can picture that. That makes sense. And oftentimes in some of the most famous trilobites, the cephalon is like a crescent-shaped shield. Mm-hmm. And then there's a bunch of thorax segments. And then there is a shield-like pygidium at the back. Yes. So it's just... Segments enclosed, bookended on either side by this sort of more solid-looking shield. Well, they're, they're the uh, nature's accordions. Yes, they are. And as you have already gotten the impression, these come in a variety. Lots of diversity in terms of size and shape, spines in all directions. Some are just totally smooth. They also vary in the number of thorax segments. So a trilobite, you know, it wouldn't be unusual to see a trilobite with like, you know, eight or ten or whatever segments. Some have as few as two. Wow. And it's just shield, shield, and then a couple segments in the middle. And at least one that I've seen referenced has more than a hundred. And they get very, very small toward the back. So it kind of tapers off 
into just this long string of thorax. That's so weird. Underneath all of this back armor are the legs, which are biramus, which means two-branched. The lower branch of the leg is a walking leg. Mm-hmm. It is like you picture an insect kind of leg, you know, it's yeah. an invertebrate leg. On top of that is a second branch of the limb, which is a gill branch. Oh, cool. So each leg is a walking, each each limb is a walking leg and a gill. Some of the trilobite limbs are also, have a, a structure called a nathobase, which means jaw base. <laughs> and the base of the limb, the leg where it meets the body, is spiny. Yes! For shredding up things before they go into the mouth. Like in horseshoe crabs. Like in horseshoe crabs, I think. Horseshoe crabs, they have the same, they have spines on the inside. Think of like the inside of your thighs. They have spines pointing toward their central mouth, which means horseshoe crabs can only chew while they walk. Because the movement of the legs grinds food into the mouth. Cool. Yeah. Trilobites seem to have been doing something very similar. At least some of them were. That's so cool. I didn't know that. And that's also, see, I don't think that's... Just horseshoe crabs and trial. I think there are other crustaceans no, that I'm, do stuff yeah, like I'm that. Sure. There are other ancient organisms that do that. Trilobites also come in a range of sizes. A typical size for a trilobite is a few centimeters. You know, like fits nicely in your palm, maybe the size of your hand. Like mm-hmm. they're not big animals for the most part. But on the small end, things like that would reach at full adult size about one millimeter. Wow. Actually microscopic. That is a entire animal that is smaller than the smallest snake vertebrae <laughs> that Steve and I looked at at the fossil site. And these are often found in swarms. Mm-hmm. On the other end of the spectrum, the largest known trilobite specimen uh, that you'll see referenced often is named Isotelus rex. <laughs> from the late Ordovician of Canada, measured at 72 centimeters. Wow. Which is going on a meter. Yeah. That's two feet. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. More than that. Almost almost three three feet. Yeah, three. Like, that's a big, that is the size of a small child. (laughs) Isotelus is not spiny. Early Isotelus rex, not spiny, very smooth, which is even more impressive because some of the largest trilobites gain some length. With, like, a tail spine? Yes. This one does not. Yeah, because this one doesn't need to show <laughs> <Right>. off. <laughs> and it's the, it's, what's unique about this one is that it's known from a complete specimen. So it's not like we found half of it and we're extrapolating. No, no. 72 centimeters right here. Trilobites, very diverse, very long-lived, and a long history of being appreciated a- as fossils of importance for people. Mm-hmm. I found references that suggests that there are written descriptions of trilobites going back to the 4th century wow. AD. Maybe even earlier. I mean, they're, they're uh, the thing I always think of as a, a great example of how iconic they are is they're what the first Godzilla movie decided to use as, yes. this is how we're going <laughs> to let everyone know Godzilla is an ancient creature. Yep, they put a trilobite in his footprint. Yep. Those uh, descriptions, I believe, are, if, if I read correctly, Spanish and Chinese sources. Cool. But there is also, it's documented that some Native Americans, uh, I, re- I read of Native Americans referenced in Utah, where there are famous trilobite sites, 
wore trilobites on strings as pendants, like good luck pendants. That's the best good luck pendant. I, I, that's pretty good. <laughs> Especially if you get one of those piratized ones. Yeah. It's good stuff. And then in science, in the, in the realm of, you know, recent science, trilobites are well known as index fossils. They are the quintessential example. Trilobites and ammonites. Yes. Are like the quintessential examples of index fossils. And what that means is this is a group that evolves rapidly, is widespread, and fossilizes very, very well, which means that different time periods tend to have their own suite of trilobite species. Yes, when you when you move from one layer of rock to another, the trilobites found in each are distinct. Yep. They evolved quickly enough, and they fossilized well enough for you to have a nice selection and be able to distinguish them. So they're handy for biostratigraphy. Yes. I know what age I'm in because I found this trilobite. And because they're so long-lasting, because they're so diverse, because they evolve so rapidly, there's a term I'll introduce here in a little bit, they have been used for a very long time as great case studies for evolution. There have been studies that have turned to them for examples of gradual change over time, for long-lasting stasis, for convergent evolution, for speciation and extinction. I believe that they were a big factor in the development of the idea of punctuated equilibrium, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. a very famous concept in evolutionary science of not continuous gradual, gradual change, but quick periods of change followed by long periods of not a lot of change, and then another step, and then another step, as the Stephen Jay Gould at all popularized when trying to figure out, okay, how does evolution actually work? What are the patterns in evolution? Trilobites, because they're just an incredible resource to tap for that kind of study. Well, because, and we've mentioned this before when, uh, especially when it comes to modern groups, that it can, it's really difficult to monitor evolution in real time because you, you need a research lab that's going to run for the next thousand years. Right to even glimpse a portion of it. And it's very rare that we get a case study that would be equivalent to that kind of modern study in the fossil record. But then you get stuff like trilobites where, no, you have tons of fossils with lots of diversity and they lasted a very long time. So it's just about as good as being able to set up a lab and just watch something. Oh, yeah. When you, have, when you have more identified species than most vertebrate fossils have specimens. Yes. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Some famous trilobite sites. Now, I'm, I'm going to list a few. There are so many great places to find trilobites. I believe we have them here. Our local limestone here in East Tennessee. I don't think I've ever seen any personally, but I've heard that you get trilobites and I, it's the right age. I know we've had people who have come in and said they found them. The Burgess Shale, the famous Burgess Shale in British Columbia, and the Chengjiang fauna in China, the same place that that cool worm from the news was found, are both very well-known, very rich Cambrian fossil sites, famous for lots of animals, but among them trilobites. There is a place called Emu Bay in Australia, where they are found, and there are lots in the United States. Lots of U.S. states have trilobites. I will name a couple from New York that are particularly famous uh, one is Beecher's Trilobite Bed, which is famous for piratized trilobites. Which, if piratized fossils, 
just wow. That means that they have been permineralized with pyrite. So they are metallic. They're gold. <laughs> yeah. They're metallic gold fossils. Which is so cool. There's also the Walcott Rush Quarry, Rust Quarry, Walcott Rust Quarry in New York, which uh, I've seen described as having the first trilobites with definitely def- described appendages. Nice. So soft tissue preserved. So trilobites are extremely diverse, extremely famous, extremely useful, and one of the most famous aspects of their success, I think one of the biggest signs of their success, is not just how many different forms and shapes they achieved, but how long they lasted. Trilobites lasted longer than there have been mammals. Yeah. And dinosaurs. Yeah. Like, even counting birds. Yep. (laughs) Trilobites were around longer than that. Trilobites show up in the early Cambrian and last throughout the Paleozoic. So before we get into some of their lifestyles and such, let's do a brief history of trilobites. (laughs) What do we know about where they came from, how they got started, and what happened to them along the way? Starting, as we like to start with where they fit on the big tree of life. Now, sometimes, uh, uh, listeners who've heard us talk about other groups of animals, it's real easy to say, okay, here's where they are, cut and dry. Boom. This is not one of those groups. What? Trilobites are widely considered a single group. They are monophyletic, so they have a single ancestry. But exactly where they fit on the arthropod family tree is not clear. There's been a lot of back and forth. In the past, they were at one point considered part of what was called the Trilobitomorpha, (laughs) which was kind of a catch-all group for just weird Paleozoic things that we didn't know where they went. Uh, What what, uh, some people would call a wastebasket taxon. And that has been now considered invalid, which leaves us trying to figure out if trilobites are close to the chelicerates which are your horseshoe crabs, your ripterids, your sea scorpions, and your arachnids, so spiders and true scorpions, on the one side. And there are studies that have said, yes, trilobites are closely related to chelicerates. But then there are other studies that say that they are closer to what is known as the mandibulata, which are your crustaceans, myriapods, which are uh, millipedes and centipedes, and hexapods, which are your six-limbed, uh, uh, arthropods. So, you know, beetles and stuff. Yeah. As of now, uh, there does not appear to be a consensus on where trilobites exactly fall out. They are their own cool thing. Which, like, to to a degree that almost makes sense in my mind of, like, with trilobites, that would be like if, to try to put it in a, a mentality for us, that'd be like if crustaceans weren't a thing. Right, or like insects. Yeah. Oh, we just don't have insects, and then trying to figure out where they fit. Place this massively diverse, long-spanning group and figure out where it fits without any modern reference for it. So, yeah, I mean, it makes sense that it would be difficult. Well, and and trilobites were extremely popular and successful when a lot of our modern groups were just getting started. Yes, The earliest trilobites show up around the Middle Cambrian, so about 520 million years ago or so, but they might not have started then. 
there are bits of evidence of potential trilobite ancestry going back to the Precambrian. Which is uh, another issue that comes in with a lot of organisms there is if you didn't develop your tough parts right away, maybe there were squishy trilobites for a while, and then they got all calcified and we started fossilizing. In the Precambrian, earlier than 540 or so million years ago, there are trace fossils, so walking paths that are similar to trilobite traces. There are several different kinds of trilobite traces, and there are some from before we have trilobite body fossils that might be trilobites or ancestors of trilobites. There are also a bunch of forms from the Precambrian that are kind of trilobite-like. Mm-hmm. Things from the Ediacaran fauna like Sprigina and Archaeospinus, which are things that have segmented bodies. And some people have said, well, they're segmented bodies kind of like trilobites. And so maybe, maybe they're kind of similar. There is at least one group that are so-called soft-bodied trilobites, <laughs> which are soft animals that look like trilobites. And so there are some of these kind of tantalizing, maybe relatives, maybe ancestors. There is a Precambrian animal that I've seen referenced a couple times named Parvin Carina, and an early Cambrian one named Primacaris, which both look kind of like trilobites without the segments. Mm-hmm. So if all the parts of the body were one big shield without the differentiation we see in trilobites, and some have said maybe those are an early stage or representative of an early stage in trilobite evolution. And in the Cambrian, you also have things like Naroya and Kuyamaya, which look like trilobites with a little bit of segmentation. And so some have said these might represent branches along the evolutionary path, starting out as a simple shield and then developing segmentation as you go. And then, whatever those origins are, trilobites. Series 2 of the early Cambrian is when we see the first trilobites, because it is defined in part by the first appearance of trilobites. (laughs) A little over 520 million years ago, the oldest known trilobites are from places like Scandinavia and Eastern Europe. And then, shortly after that, we see them popping up in a bunch of places. Here's some names. Prophalataspis from Siberia, Fritz Aspis from Nevada and California, Hypatina from Morocco, and a couple others from Spain, Serrania and Luna Graulos. Invertebrates get weird names. Trilobites pretty quickly became fairly widespread across the northern continents, and begin to diversify into the major different groups that we see. They eventually start appearing in places like China and Australia and Antarctica, and by the late Cambrian, they have made it pretty much everywhere. Cool. So from Middle Cambrian to Late Cambrian, well, from Early Middle-ish to Late Cambrian, trilobites take over the world. The early major group that you'll see referenced a lot among trilobites in the Cambrian is called the Red Lichiana, which is a group that is considered paraphyletic, which is to say that it is the starting batch that okay. then gave rise to most of the other major groups of trilobites. All right. It's the the founding, the founders. Yes. So that's, there they are. Trilobites have begun and then they differentiate into major groups and persist throughout the rest of the Paleozoic. 
And I found a reference to a publication that lists how many families of trilobites are recognized over the course of the rest of the Paleozoic. (laughs) Wow. Now, this is from a 2009 publication. These are numbers, and numbers are always subject to change. But I think that these do, though they they might not be the, the definite numbers even by now, I think these do a cool job of showing how trilobite diversity changed over time. So we'll reference these. According to this publication, there were about 26 families of trilobites in the early Cambrian. And by the time you got to the Ordovician period, the next period, they had gone up to over 60. The late Cambrian into the Ordovician is the peak of trilobite diversity. That is as good as it ever got for trilobites. Big deal trilobite time. Over the course of the Ordovician, the number of families dwindles a bit. And then at the end of the Ordovician, there is a mass extinction. One of the big five mass extinctions, which trilobites do not, they are not treated nicely by the end Ordovician mass extinction. Going into the Silurian period, they are down to less than 20 families, less than that first number from the early Cambrian, carrying over into the Devonian period. And then at the end of the Devonian period, episode 65, There is another mass extinction, (laughs) which brings trilobites down to about five families. And then they stay this sort of lessened in diversity group of animals through the Carboniferous period, slowly dwindling until we get into the late Permian period, where there are only two families left, both part of a group called the Proatids, which got their start in the Cambrian. (laughs) At least as early as the Cambrian. Nice. And by the time we get to the end of the Permian, where, episode 45, there is a mass extinction. Yeah, yeah. By the time we get there, according to a 2003 study that I found, there are about five genera left. each, Each a genus from East Europe and Asia. And those five genera do not survive the end Permian mass extinction. Now, on the one hand, you might say, well, that's a shame. Poor trilobites. On the other hand, you might say it took three mass extinctions, (laughs) like global giant mass extinctions to finally take trilobites out. That's just such a massive span of time. They are around from over 520 million years to around 250 million years ago which means that they persisted for over 270 million years. That's so insane! Which is one of the most successful runs of any group of organisms, especially considering how conservative they were in terms of morphology. They always looked like trilobites. Yeah, I I could bring a whole bunch of trilobites and put them out on a table from... (laughs) I could bring out... Trilobites each 50 million years apart. Right. And put them out on a table, and unless you're a trilobite specialist, you probably couldn't tell me which the earlier ones and the later ones were. Right, right. Yeah, these look like trilobites. Yeah. They were extremely successful. They were also, here's the term I referenced earlier, I've seen them described as volatile, which is to say they had high rates of speciation and high rates of extinction. Okay, yeah fast turnover, which is part of that index fossil thing, that you're constantly, new species are coming and going. 
And because you're so quick to speciate and you have all this diversity, that also ties into being hit pretty hard by extinctions. It's These are all these new species that now they're gone and now we diversify again after the extinction. It, it means both that there's more species to go extinct when a mass extinction comes around, but you can also bounce back from it. Right. You know, more, more readily than another group might. And... Then they're gone. Yes. And it's th- there's always that question with extinction of, oh, well, why did they go extinct? What 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 was the thing that did it? And with trilobites, it really seems to be that just as time went on, they dwindled in diversity and each new thing left them a little bit less diverse, a little bit less able to bounce back. Each time you have less stock to rebuild from until the end, they just didn't have what it took to survive and that that conservatism uh conservatism that we were mentioning though interesting and cool can be a major hindrance in that regard of you know if you are not adapting enough at some point the niche that you were filling quite well there may be just too much competition you know now the Arthur, you know, the, the crustaceans have also produced a bottom-dwelling scurrying critter, and right, right. the mollusks have produced a bottom-dwelling scurrying armored critter, and there are now fish that have turned their fins into weird scurrying. <laughs> so it's like at now you're not the main group doing that, so you're you're competing at the you're competing with others who are equally good at it, and sometimes that's all it takes. And if your diversity keeps going down, if each extinction takes out two families, well, eventually you run out of families. Yep. And by the end of it, they just didn't. And they were so dwindled by the end of the Permian. I've heard discussions in the past of people debating whether or not trilobites even made it to the end Permian. Yeah. The research that I read seems to suggest that they did. And I have read a bunch of sources that suggested that they did. But I know there's been discussion in the past of were they so far gone by that point that they didn't even make it to the end Permian. Mm-hmm. They just, they had a good run and then they slowly dwindled. It makes me think of groups today that only have single members and stuff like that. Oh yeah, yeah. Where, well, we, you mentioned we mentioned the shelled cephalopods. Yeah. and the Nautilus is like that. Yeah, it's episode like, sixteen. The, you know, I I'm sure, maybe not. You know, I'm I'm hopeful. I love the Nautilus, but I'm sure paleontologists of the distant, distant future are going to look back and be like, well, yeah, of course. I mean, there was only, uh, you know, so many. Yeah. Of course it died out, you know, around right. this time. So if there, for example, just imagining if there was another mass extinction. If there's some sort of um, a drastic climate shift. Or right, right, right. Episode 55. Then, yeah, they might not yeah. make it past that. But while they were around, trilobites lived incredible lives and because they're such diverse and common fossils, we've been able to learn a ton about those lifestyles, and we'll talk about that after the break. One of the things that paleontologists often find themselves wondering about ancient organisms, but rarely with the opportunity to learn the answers to it, is how they perceived the world. Yes. With trilobites, we know they had antennae, 
Uh, we talked uh, in a news not too long ago about how some of them appeared to use their long spines to keep in contact with each other as they, they marched single file through the sediment. <laughs> so we know they had some tactile senses and things like that. But it's it's very difficult to learn about ancient creatures' senses. Trilobites are an exception when it comes to the sense of vision. One of the things that trilobites are most famous for is that they are among the first animals with sophisticated vision systems, and that we know that because their eyes fossilize extremely well. We talked about this uh, uh, quite a bit in episode 68, mm -hmm. about the evolution of eyes, but we'll go over it here just a bit, because it's cool and maybe you haven't listened to that episode yet. Maybe this will convince you to go listen. Trilobite eyes were mostly compound eyes. So this is what you think of when you think of insects today. These are eyes that have many lenses working together to form a single image. So in our eyes, we have one lens. It's inside the eye. And the compound eye, it's many lenses on the outside working together to see a single image. Really good for detecting motion. Yes. Because you can compare what's coming through. Well, the brain can compare what's coming into each of the different lenses. In trilobites, they have two eyes located on top of the cephalon, usually looking sideways. They usually face to the sides. Uh, a lot of trilobites were looking a lot horizontally, right? Or across the horizon. And the thing that makes trilobite eyes so amazing for paleontology is that the lenses were calcified. Yeah. The lenses were made of calcite, which means they fossilize really well. Calcite is a transparent mineral. And so, yeah, they built their lenses of calcite, which is the same stuff that is fossilizing in their exoskeleton mm. and in clams and stuff, which means we have all of these incredible fossils of detailed, high, super well-preserved trilobite eyes. And we know that they were not just compound like we have today, but fairly sophisticated. They had a doublet structure, which means two layers of lenses that helped to focus. And the shape the lenses took were also highly adapted for getting rid of distortion in light coming in. Indeed, a reference that I found pointed out that the lens shapes in trilobite eyes are shockingly similar to lens designs <laughs> from the 17th century from people like Descartes and Huygens. <laughs> who tried their best to come up with designs that would minimalize blurriness in images. That's really cool. Trilobites pulled it off 500 million years earlier. <laughs> That's really cool. It's just, it's just so cool. In general, there are two types of eyes that you see in trilobites. Holocroal eyes, which is what is seen in most of them, which is lots of lenses closely packed together, under a single cornea, so your eye has a cornea too, which is the covering that protects the eye. The lenses are usually hexagon-shaped, and there can be as many as 15,000 per eye in these eyes. The other type of eye is known as schizocroal, famously in a group called the phacopina. The, the, like, if you think of phacops, which is the phacops, which is the Pennsylvania state fossil, if I remember correctly. These are large, thick lenses that have cuticles surrounding them. So each lens has a little divider 
that separates it from the lens next the uh, the lenses surrounding it. Oh. And each lens has a separate cornea. Yeah. These tend to have fewer lenses, only up to about 700 lenses per eye. And between the two of those give trilobites this incredible visual ability. I like that because, as we mentioned in our eyes episode, you see those same category of compound eye in today's compound eye wielding animals. And it's cool because these don't have descendants. So... Right, right. It's another group doing that. A separate evolution of it. Which is, that's fantastic. Episode 70, Convergent Evolution. (laughs) Even among the eyes, trilobites are very diverse. The classic trilobite eye is, you know, it it sits on top of the head. It's kind of crescent-shaped. It looks out over the horizon of the seafloor or whatever. There are some, I've seen some referenced as potentially being overlapping visual fields enough to provide binocular vision. Okay, yeah, so they would have a little bit of potentially depth perception Mm -hmm. in the middle. There are some that had their eyes on stalks. Yeah. Probably good for when if you're moving through, like, debris and algae and the the seafloor. There are some with giant dragonfly, like, orb-shaped eyes that would have given them nearly 360-degree vision. There is at least one very famous uh, specimen or or, type of trilobite, probably several species, that had these tall cylindrical eyes. These tower eyes. They they looked like a uh, like a speaker, like a like a big cylindrical speaker that you might have next to your computer or at a big concert or something. That's exactly what they look like. Probably gave them long distance vision (laughs) because you had these elevated eyes. And at least some of those had a rim around the top of the eye that provided shade so that it wouldn't it be it would block light coming in from directly above to avoid glare. Yeah. And then there are some groups in several different groups that did the thing that I have awed over snakes for doing, which is I like a group that looks at this amazing, incredible thing that its ancestors have developed and then decides to forego it altogether. <laughs> Several groups had reduced or completely lost their eyes. Wow. This evolved multiple times. Wow. I mean, it, it's not entirely shocking, because we have blind species of a ton of groups nowadays. Oh, yeah. You know, there's blind fish, and there's blind... there's in, Lot, Lots of invertebrates. Lots of invertebrates yeah. have lost their eyes, so, you know, that's not wholly unreasonable, but that's a bunch of times for yeah one one v- admittedly very large group, but still. And for a group that's famous for their eyes. Yes. Like, your ancestors worked hard for those eyes. <laughs> I'm not going to be famous for that. Now, a diversity in eyes and sensory adaptations brings up the question of what trilobites were doing with their lives. Yeah, what were you looking at? How were they living? What were they doing and this was an interesting part for me in, in my looking up references on trilobites, because I will admit that I kind of had a pigeonholed image in my head of trilobites. This notion of them crawling along the seafloor, eating, you know, junk and scavenging stuff on the seafloor, which is true of some. Yeah. But they were very diverse. It's very easy to get stuck thinking of them as just ancient undersea Roombas. Yeah. And that's that's how they're usually portrayed. All trilobites are marine. 
There are, as far as I can find, no freshwater trilobites. That surprises me. Which is very interesting. I would not have bet that. Some of them did live on the seafloor, but there are some that were pelagic, which is to say swimmers. I mentioned uh, that there are some with those giant orb eyes. Mm -hmm. There is uh, one in particular I've seen referenced, Opiputarella, had these huge dragonfly orb eyes and head sp like spikes on the head that faced downwards, which right off the bat, researchers were like, okay, well, that's you're not crawling <laughs> if you have spikes sticking downwards. And j why would you need 360 degree vision if you're crawling around on the ground? They also have narrow bodies and what appear to be areas for strong muscle attachment. That's that's I need to see I need to see this uh, a full full version of one of these. Yeah, they were swimmers. Google oh, they'll be in the the blog post. <laughs> they were swimmers. Now, uh this one's for Will mostly. Um the name originally the name is Opiputer, which means one who gazes. <laughs> uh, which if there's anybody else out there who uh is listened to the Magnus archives is a very Magnus archives that is, that is thing to wa say. who watches the trial <laughs> <laughs> there are other what, what I've seen repeatedly described as bug-eyed trilobites um that are found in deeper waters and are thought to have lived in what's known in ocean parlance as the twilight zone. Yeah, almost no light. Almost no light, and their big eyes may have helped them absorb as much light as possible to see in it's, the darkness. Yeah, that's something you see in a lot of twilight zone creatures now, is just these massive orb eyes to pick up whatever they can. And then there are some, I've seen uh, one named Parabandia, described as particularly hydrodynamic narrow bodies, and their cephalon, their head bit, was not pointed, but longer and kind of cone-shaped, like the nose of a shark. Yeah. Which we see in a lot of fast-swimming animals today. So there were, tra just like there are crabs and lobsters that swim. Absolutely. Right? A lot of animals we think of today as being ground dwellers in the, in the ocean have swimming relatives yeah, it, in case anyone didn't know, there are swimming crabs there's yeah. famously open ocean crabs that and they swim sideways of course they do <laughs> they're super weird <laughs> so yeah there were swimming pelagic right in the water column trilobites but of course most trilobites were benthic yes. meaning they dwelled upon the floor of the ocean these are usually uh, their bodies are often broader and flatter they tend to have lateral facing eyes, so eyes facing to the side. And when they have spikes, they tend to point upwards <laughs> or out to the sides. A lot of these are thought to have been detritivores, which is to say crawling around on the seafloor, eating whatever food particles you can find. Some might have been grazers, so going through algal beds and scooping up algae. Yes. In these, the hypostome, so that, that calcified structure near the mouth underneath the head is not rigidly attached to the body. It's a little flexible, probably with sort of soft tissue helping it be flexible. And it's been suggested that this may have been used as a scoop oh. to help them grab up particles as they're sort of, like you said, undersea Roombas, yeah. just scooping up food that they find on the, uh, the bottom. And there are trilobite trackways 
that are thought to be grazing trails <laughs> as they're kind of plowing their way through the sediment to scoop up what they can. Those tracks are called Cruziana. If trilobites were still around today, they absolutely would be one of those animals you'd put in an aquarium to help keep things clean and tidy. Oh yeah, some of them. You'd have you'd have all these little ones trudging around your your sediment <laughs> in your aquarium. But the next group you would not want <laughs> because there are some that are very seemingly predatory. Yes, there are. Uh, these I mentioned before, the nathobases on the legs that have spines at the base of the leg to help grind stuff up. And uh, oftentimes the hypostome, the, the calcified mouth ring thing, is rigid in place, right? Sturdily held there and often with forked projections <laughs> to help shred up food on its way into the mouth. And there's a lot of variation in hypostomes, apparently, for predatory trilobites. Less so with the detritivores, because probably more of a generalist lifestyle. But for predators, there's all this variation, which some have suggested might mean that different trilobites were specializing on different types of prey. Yes. They were probably eating things like soft, you know, worms and soft-bodied things. And indeed, there are known examples of trilobite trackways intersecting worm trackways and then only the trilobite track leaves <laughs> <laughs> that's like a horrifying version of the the two sets of footprints on the beach <laughs> <laughs> some large trilobites have a so the center of the head the cephalon is called the glabella and in some large trilobites the glabella is particularly enlarged and some have suggested that it may have been room for digestion. Oh. And indeed, big trilobites with more room for eating and filling themselves up are often thought to be predators. That makes sense. You, you see that with uh, other, sim like, um, uh, sea stars and stuff yes. like that. Which are basically all predators. Terrifying like, predators. Yeah, in case people didn't know, sea stars are almost all predatory. Uh, but the sea star predators that are feeding on other sea stars are the bigger ones right the the sea the, the what is it the sun star in right the right right crown of thorns and yes a lot the of those. crown of thorns is the the one that comes to mind for me scavenging and predatory lifestyles in trilobites are also seen very commonly in the earliest ones okay and in some of the animals that are thought to be their relatives so it's thought that predatory or scavenging is the ancestral lifestyle for trilobites. That that's how they got started, which is pretty cool. Which is another nice example of uh, overturning that that cliche pigeonhole. Right. They're not undersea Roombas. I love undersea Roombas. Yes. What a great description <laughs> for trilobites. <laughs> yeah, that they, they have many species that were active predators, and that may actually be what the default was. That's cool. Okay. Trilobites weren't just these boring things that were eating <laughs> mush. You know, there was a bunch of different kinds. And then there are some that were very specialized. There are trilobites like Cryptolithus that are thought to have been filter feeders. I was so hoping you would say that. Yep. So filter feeders uh, uh, strain water through some sort of structure and then strain out the particles. Right? Yes. They grab up the particles. It, it, it's mass feeding on. I'm going to collect... Lots and lots of very tiny food. Yes. 
These trilobites have their cephalon, their head, is often domed (laughs) and with wide brims. And it forms this dome with a chamber underneath it. This sort of enclosed area underneath the head, this wide domed head. And they're thought to have used their legs to kick up sediment into the space underneath the head. And then the head has small canals running from the underside to the outside that they would have filtered water out through while they collected the little particles. That's interesting. So their head covered a little space of seafloor. They kicked up the sediment, and then they grabbed up the particles as the water flowed out. Have you ever seen someone clean an aquarium with those suction hoses that have the wide open mouth? Yes. That's what I'm picturing. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. It, maybe it is something like Where that. It, it stirs up the sediment, and it's, it's... Now, this is actual suction that they're using, but it's enough suction to pull up water, but not the sediment because of how wide the opening is. And that's how you pull fish poop out of the sediment in your aquarium. Oh, well, that's how trilobites pulled fish poop out of the yeah, seafloor. That's what I'm picturing <laughs> is them with this, this big cavity that they're stirring and pulling water through, but keeping all the, the morsels. The tasty stuff. Oh, that's really neat. <laughs> and then, of course, you know, there are swimming trilobites. There are ground-dwelling, ground seafloor-dwelling trilobites. And many of them are thought to have lived in rather deep water. And this is evidenced by the multiple examples of lost eyes. Lots of trilobites have reduced eyes. Some of those have pits along the fringe, the edge of the cephalon, that are thought to have been sensory structures. You can't see, but you have these sensory pits along the edge of the head. That's, That's fun. And then there are some, like species of a group called Olanina, that are found in sediments that are particularly low in oxygen and high in sulfur, which is an odd place to live if you are an animal like a trilobite. And researchers have noted that they tend to have lots of thorax segments, and the plural lobes of the thorax, right, the side lobes, tend to be very wide, which has been interpreted as extensive room for gills. That the gill branches on your legs are extensively developed, which makes sense if you're trying to breathe in low oxygen water. The more gills you have, the more effective your breathing might be. But also it has been noted that a lot of these have reduced hypostomes. Mm -hmm. Their mouth part is reduced. And some have pointed out that there are modern day crustaceans that have symbiotic bacteria in their gills. And the bacteria feed on sulfur in the in the very sulfur-rich waters, and the crustaceans receive nutrients from the bacteria. And it has been suggested that some of these might have been trilobites doing the same thing, with symbiotic bacterial colonies in their gills, allowing them to survive in waters that they otherwise couldn't. That would just be way too fantastic. That's that's too wonderful. <laughs> that that would be way too awesome. That's so that's so interesting. And it once again makes sense. Like the amount of diversity in this group, you could point at almost anything an arthropod is doing today, and you know at least in water. And the chances are, yeah, there may have been one doing something. So because. Yep. 
they were around for so long and had such diversity that, yeah, I mean, why wouldn't they have felt out every niche possible? <laughs> and of course, while trilobites are roaming around getting their own food, they are almost certainly food for other things. Mm -hmm. Especially smaller trilobites are thought to, many of them are thought to have been to the bottom of the food chain. <laughs> you are the trail mix of the Paleozoic oceans. Oh yeah, you're, you're the brine shrimp. In the Cambrian, as early as the Cambrian, trilobites would have had to look out for other arthropods, bigger trilobites, uh, other crustacean and, and such relatives, possibly things like Anomalocaris. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In the Ordovician, they th this repertoire of predators is joined by the nautiloids, Ugh. which are some of the earliest cephalopods to rise to dominance in the seas, episode 16. And then in the Devonian, the oceans see the rise of jawed fish. <laughs> so we are talking about trilobites dwindling yeah. <laughs> over the course of the Paleozoic. Yeah. yeah, things got harder and harder for trilobites. It makes me think of a, a paper I saw one time that was making an argument for why cephalopods are so intelligent and so good at hiding, and it's because they're delicious. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that everything likes to eat cephalopod. Now, trilobites responded to these predatory pressures with two tricks. One, spikes. Yes. Oh, there are such... Again, blog post, there will be spikes. There are just so many cool, diverse... Spiky, pointy, spiny trilobites. Trilobites fall into one of those categories of fossil organism that there are many members who feel like they were drawn by 12-year-olds. Yes. Like, it, they look like things I drew as a kid when it's like, well, I want them to look cool, so it's going to be a spike on every inch of the body. Every segment's got a spike. And they're all going to be swooping backwards to indicate he goes fast. And, like, <laughs> and they look like that. And that's what they look like. <laughs> So they got all these spikes, and it has, uh, of course, been suggested that these are probably, at least in part, for protection. And uh, a trick that Will alluded to earlier, many trilobites, in fact, most trilobites I've seen it written, could curl up into a ball. The first time I saw a fossil preserved of one curled, that, that was the first time I went, okay, trilobites are not just these weird ancient bug things. They were cool. They're so cool. And in fact, the um, the the image, the teaser image for this episode that I put up on social media is a curled up mm -hmm. fossil trilobite. This habit is called enrollment. Enrollment. Enrollment, like into college. Yeah, I'm, that's what I'm going to think of from now on <laughs> when I hear that term. Curling your armored back allowed trilobites to protect their soft legs and their soft tummy. And in... And they did it in a variety of ways. Like some of them just curled up like a, you know, a, a, like think of an armadillo lizard or something. Just I'm going to curl up and I'm going to be kind of hard to eat. In some, the cephalon and the pygidium, the head and the, the tail bit, were shaped around the margins so that they would lock together. Like a coin purse. Yes, exactly. So that the, the margins all fit together. In others, the pygidium would slide underneath the cephalon. So you have this sort of spiral look to it. Like rolling up a map. Like rolling up a map. And some would curl up into balls, like an armadillo into a ball. Others folded. Yes. So the segments didn't all bend the same way. They would fold like a clam. Yeah, like, a, a, like you're folding just a one-fold wallet. 
Yes. You know, it's, yes. <laughs> this part's flexible, and the rest you could bend, but that's not what it's supposed to be. That, the first time I saw one of those, uh, that was so weird, because that seems like such a counterintuitive way to roll your body. Right, right. Because we're so used to the, the roly-poly pill-bug isopods of, I create a perfect sphere. But these are just like, nope, yep. fold in half. <laughs> fold in the middle. And fold, fold yourself in the middle. And one of, not a single person is going to get that reference. One of the benefits of folding yourself like that is that you've got spikes sticking out of the head. So a lot of trilobites had the, the corners of the head stuck out backwards. And then they'd have spikes sticking out backwards on the tail, mm-hmm. on the pygidium. Pygidium? Pygidium? Someone, trilobite researchers are going to be mad at me, I'm sure. <laughs> But if you fold yourself over, now your head spikes are pointing backwards and your tail spikes are pointing forwards and you have made yourself into, th- there's no good direction to come at you now. Well, it's, what you've done is it's, it's nature's caltrop. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's, there's spikes all over pointing in all directions. And that's, it's just so fantastic because it once again breaks that mentality that these were just these. I'm boring and I'm on the seafloor. It's like, no, they were cool and dynamic and they had really mean ways of fighting back against yeah. predators. Sea urchins before sea urchins. Yes. I curl up into a ball and you can't do anything to me. <laughs> so they lived a, a whole bunch of uh, uh, very cool lifestyles. They had a bunch of really cool tricks up their sleeve. The last bit of trilobite lifestyle that I want to touch on is what we have learned about trilobite reproduction and growth which is that that's a topic that very often we don't really get to discuss because there's often not enough to have a good discussion so it's exciting when it gets to come up yes and in this case it is a dichotomy when it comes to reproduction we know almost nothing all right we don't have evidence of reproductive organs really we don't they're just we know very little about how trilobites reproduced there was a study in 2017 that famously found eggs underneath the cephalon of a trilobite named triarthus which appears to be a brooding that it was holding on to its eggs keeping them safe under the head and there are trilobites where you'll get this swelling in the cephalon the the head part that some researchers have suggested might be brood pouches i read somewhere that in in some cases they've even been uh, suspected to be sexually dimorphic oh yeah that only some of the trilobites have these swollen heads that they might be using as brood pouches. Crustaceans today, there are a bunch of crustaceans that have brood areas. Yes. Where they hold on to the the eggs. But we don't really know very much about trilobite reproduction. We do, however, know a ton about trilobite growth. Because, like you, you picture an insect today, a lot of arthropods today, they molted as they grew. Indeed, Many fossils of trilobites are not the trilobite. It is their molted exoskeleton that became fossilized. And that's, I love that because one, that's fun. It's like, oh, we found a fossil of a trilobite. Well, part of it. (laughs) Well, it's like when you find a spider in the house, you go, oh, Oh, no, it's just the skin of a spider. Yeah. (laughs) But also there's something very uh, uh, intriguing for... In so many ways, they are different from crustaceans and insects. You know, like they've got their limbs are not tough the same way, and their sections are all different, but they still molt. Yeah. And that's, I don't know, I like that. 
I knew that they molted, and I knew that, like, modern insects and, and, and other arthropods, molting allows them to grow. Yes. Right? You get soft inside, you leave your hard shell, and then you grow a bit, and then you develop a new shell. What I didn't know, two things I didn't know about trilobite molting, one is that they also, like modern arthropods, heal mm-hmm. that way. Mm-hmm. With each molt, you are rebuilding an injury, and so we get to see stages of healing by looking at injured molts. That's really cool. And the cephalon, the head of the trilobite, had different groups have what are called sutures, which are these lines that run across the cephalon. And in different groups, they're diagnostic, right? What exactly the shape is. Those sutures split. And that is where oh. the trilobite exits when it molts. The sutures on the head split and it crawls out of its own head. And leaves the molt behind. It molts like a snake. Yep. Just, oh, it exits <laughs> from the front. Exits from the front. And crawls right out. Once again, like, stuff like that's not unheard of with other, like, spiders are one of my favorites because they the their back just pops open like a hinged yep. door. And then they have to, like, wriggle <laughs> out, out of it. Uh, but that's so, it's cool that there's another way. Yeah. The head, op- <sighs> the head opens up and then, and then I'm ready to go. That's fantastic. And because they fossilize so well and they leave behind molts, we know a lot about the growth stages of trilobites. Trilobites come in three general growth stages. They start out in a stage called the protaspis, which is a stage that has no articulated segments yet. Basically, it's a little shield. They haven't developed their segments that will allow them to bend. Adorable. Yeah. A lot of these are thought to have been planktic, so probably floating in the the sea column. Some of them were little smooth shields. Others already had spikes. (laughs) (laughs) The next stage, as they continue to grow, is called the meraspis, which is a stage where they start gaining their articulated, so their bendy specimens. So think of like a bendy straw, mm-hmm. how mm-hmm. there are the parts where it bends against itself. Each time the meraspis molts, they'll gain usually one or two new segments in the thorax. Ah. And then when you are done gaining new segments, you become an adult stage known as the holaspis, which is you're still growing every time you molt, but you're no longer adding new segments to the body. So trilobites start out as this tiny little shield and then gain segments as they grow until they are done gaining segments. Some trilobites, as they gain segments, all of their thorax segments are pretty much the same. This is called homonymous. Others have differentiated thorax segments, like some will have these broad spikes or some will be narrow. That's called heteronymous. And then usually the thorax is split into a prothorax and an opisthothorax. That will look different. So you end up with a trilobite that looks like it has more than three parts from front to back. Yeah, because the, the thorax change. has different segments, different uh, sections to it. Cool. As I mentioned in the beginning, there are some like Balcaracania that grow over 100 segments over the course of their development that get very, very tiny toward the back. Others grow very few, and in fact, as adults, still look like a protaspis. <laughs> They're basically just still a shield with very little articulation in the middle. And, Will, this is for you. <laughs> I learned that some species of trilobites, including some isotelus, which includes the giant one, apparently metamorphosed. 
I was I just I was wondering <laughs> that this entire time. I was like listening to everything, going, I wonder if any of this counts. This is so Metamorphosis episode eighty one. Just last time, there are some uh, trilobites that seem to ha- they have this larval protaspis, and then undergo a rapid shift into a meraspis stage, a middle stage that looks a lot like a benthic seafloor dwelling adult. So they're larval early, and then they quickly become this. I live on the seafloor. I look like an adult but I'm still gaining segments until I finally become an adult. Yeah, I mean, because that, that planktonic larval state, that's very that's very crustacean and metamorphosis, uh, uh, fish metamorphosis. Yes, like, that's yes, yes. very similar. Oh. So trilobites are real cool. Really? They are awesome. And now that we've learned about trilobite diversity... I can talk just a little bit about a group called the Agnostids. Yes. This one's for Cheryl. Cheryl requested this. Agnostids are a group that uh, were around from the Cambrian to the Ordovician. Very abundant, very widespread, usually very small, like, like a few millimeters long. Very, very, very tiny. That are trilobite-like. Mm-hmm. But not quite treated like most trilobites. So the cephalon and the pygidium and agnostids are very similar to each other. So they look, you know, you flip them back and forth and they look very much the same. Yeah, push me, pull you trilobites. They, the thorax only has two or three segments to it, two or three segments within. Their eyes are typically reduced or absent completely. And their hypostome, they don't have a trilobite style hypostome, the mouth structure. So they are these weird little creatures whose relationships have gone through many different suggestions. Originally, they were considered a subgroup of trilobites, and I found a bunch of references that still called them a subgroup of trilobites. I even found some places where they would be called a subgroup of trilobites, and then further down, they would be further explained to maybe not be a subgroup of trilobites. (laughs) More recently, there have been some suggestions that agnostids may have been Close to trilobites, close relatives of trilobites, but not quite. And then others have suggested close relationship with crustaceans. So not particularly near trilobites. This is based in part on their larval anatomy. So comparing their early growth stages. Their lifestyle has also been sort of a mystery. Some have suggested a planktic lifestyle, right? Because they have a very simple body form. They're very small. They're often found in large groups. So, you know, floating around at the whim of ocean currents seems to make sense. Others have said that because of their reduced eyes, they may have been benthic, hanging out on the seafloor. There has been at least one suggestion that agnostids may have been parasitic. (laughs) But others have pointed out that they're found in giant numbers often, which does not seem like a very parasite thing to do oh i mean yeah they were the ocean's mosquitoes (laughs) oh yeah there you go maybe they would just swarm over a creature and devour it it's it's known that uh that agnostids can strip the flesh off off the the body of a trilobite in 30 seconds so who's hungry (laughs) chilean sea bass i believe 
a very recent study looked at agnostics. This is where I, I got the phrase, the agnostic problem. <laughs> a 2019 study by Moishuk and Karen that looked at some exceptional soft tissue remains of agnostids from the Burgess Shale that had evidence of the digestive tract, the antennae, the limbs. So really good new information. Wow. And they did a phylogenetic analysis based on all their new traits that they found that they uh, support for agnostids as a sister group to trilobites and convergent with crustaceans. Okay. So back to that earlier suggestion I mentioned of you are you are in fact close to trilobites and the crustacean similarities are convergence. But it would not surprise me at all to learn that another study comes out this year that says, well, they're close to crustaceans and convergent with trilobites. Mm-hmm. And this study also found that their anatomy supports a nectobenthic lifestyle, which means swimming near the bottom. Yeah. Uh, detritivores, similar to what early trilobites were largely doing is just scooping stuff off the bottom. Mm-hmm. So agnostids are this weird, strange poorly understood group they're not the only maybe trilobites but maybe not kind of group i also read about what are called the nectaspida which are sometimes called the soft-shelled trilobites <laughs> including a genus naroya naraoya which some have classified as trilobites because they have similar body shapes but also are eyeless lack thoracic segments lack certain dorsal features and apparently the exoskeleton isn't calcified, hmm. hence the name soft-bodied trilobites. I think somewhere are soft-shelled trilobites. Yeah. So there, you have your trilobites, your very famous trilobites, and then you have these sort of nearby groups that are strange and enigmatic and difficult to understand. Yeah. I Once again, with a massive group, of course there are. Like, of course, there are a bunch of weirdos that sure seem similar, but not quite. Yeah, that's that's a pretty cool group. I also believe that it is an agnostid that received one of the dorkiest names that I've ever heard of in a fossil animal, which is an agnostid genus from China. The, the genus is named Han. I was, I, I was, yeah. is that, I didn't know that was the same Yeah, group. it was an agnostid that it, yeah. the genus is named Han after a region in China. Yes. And because it's the only species in the genus, yeah, it was all alone. They the species epithet is solo. Yes. <laughs> I had a really great time learning about trilobites in this episode. Same. Because as we've admitted, we have a bias towards bony creatures. Yep. And we don't know a ton about a lot of invertebrates. And I, I was delighted to learn just how diverse and, and incredible trilobites are. And I know that if we brought in a trilobite researcher or a, a, even probably any Paleozoic yes. specialist, they could tell us 50 things that we could have mentioned that are super cool about trilobites that we didn't get to because, alas, we have but one episode to discuss. Oh, and, and it's such a massive group. You, like. A whole documentary series could be dedicated to the the vast amount of weird trilobites. You know, we mentioned the one with a triton on its face. And yes. What, what in the world were they doing with stuff like that? <laughs> so, as always, in the blog post, we will have lots of pictures, lots of links. There is a website called, that is the trilobites website, <laughs> that just has a ton of really great information on trilobites, which was very handy for me. 
And they're, yeah, they're just so cool. Listeners, if you have a favorite trilobite or a favorite thing about trilobites that we didn't get to mention in the episode, let us know. Share a picture with us on Facebook. If any of you have your own trilobites, Will's got one that you pulled out just a yeah. little while ago. Right here. That Yeah, right there. So yeah, show us what your favorite trilobite experiences are. But before we go, you remember I mentioned Patreon at the beginning? I think so. Well, some of the other thing that our patrons get to do is ask us questions. Oh, cool. And we'll answer them here on the podcast. So we have a question today. Would you like to read it? Well, sure. So we have a question from Michael, who asks, Can the process of fossilization be replicated artificially in a lab? That is a very good question. It is. It's an important question. And the answer is yes to a degree. Yeah, kind of. There are a lot of studies that look at what's called maturation mm-hmm. experiments. And in fact, that, that news article in the beginning about the ancient proteins and stuff, the a lot of the people who work on protein preservation will do these kinds of experiments. Yeah, we, we I know uh, one of the news, as I mentioned some time ago, was about one of these maturation experiments. Yeah, they are usually you're subjecting sediments and material. Usually you're subjecting bones Mm -hmm. or organic bits to heat and pressure. Yes. To simulate, right, right, that accelerates the chemical processes that are also seen during fossilization. And so it's kind of like, it's sort of like in a microwave when you nuke something, right, to real quick, we'll blast it. It's kind of like that. It's expedited chemical alteration mimicking what happens in the fossilization process. Yeah, so the idea is that you're not going to get a one-to-one for millions of years, but you can kind of get an idea of how certain aspects, you know, how certain tissues might look right after they've gone through the time you've simulated. And I know there was a study recently that came up with a new version of a maturation experiment where I think, if I remember right, they had the specimens suspended in sediment. Mm-hmm. And that allowed certain chemical products of the, the chemi- chemistry, the chemical activity, to filter through the sediment. Gotcha. And that improved the similarity to the fossilization process. That now you have this sediment filtration added onto your conditions that is yet more accurate mm-hmm. to the true process. So yes, there are a, a, experiments that you can, can conduct in a laboratory setting to simulate fossilization. They definitely, though, are not just wholly accepted and widely used. No, because you're trying to simulate millions of years of sitting around, and that's hard to do in, you know, a day. Yeah. So I, I like I've definitely seen articles, kind of being very uh, um, tiptoeing around. Yes, things that uh, studies that use results from the, uh, with this technique. These are the kinds of studies that folks will you you know to say okay well this can this material survive this long under fossilization? What does this material look like after fossilization? Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's very useful, and other times people will say, well, you, though that might not quite be what happens because our conditions are slightly different. So useful experiments yes. with the, the, the typical caveats of difficulty to simulate something that happens on scales we can't quite 
work with. Well, and it's because like there are some things that are simulate that can be simulated very well, like a lot of physics, you know, uh, uh, um, simulations can give you a pretty good idea of what will happen, minus a few variables. But this is one of those where a lot uh, the <laughs> uh, often the response seems to be cool, but that's still not the thing you were simulating mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. So cool, but eh. So short answer? Yeah, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for your question, Michael. Thank you to Lydia, Nils, Bob, Rebecca, and Cheryl for requesting this episode. Thank you to our new patrons. Thank you to our old patrons. Thank you to all of our listeners, mm-hmm. all of the mm-hmm. members of our esteemed Baskin Coil out there in the world. Hopefully you have had as much fun learning about this amazing group of invertebrates as we have. Maybe we'll even think about doing more invertebrate episodes. Maybe. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, maybe. well, the, the last one we did was what, cephalopods? Yeah. Which was episode 16. Yep. So come back to us in two and a half years. Yeah. And we'll see which one the next one is. I mean, <laughs> what do you want from us? <laughs> <laughs> These are not the only invertebrates on our request list. There are others. So listeners, as always, if you want to hear us devote an episode to a particular topic, let us know. Our list is ever growing and our, our, and we are always receptive to things. Contact us on the social media through email, on the blog, however you want. Check out the blog. Be sure to look for pictures and links for more information if you want to learn more about Trilobites. We release episodes every fortnight. Mm-hmm. So there will be another episode in a fortnight. And until then, have a great time. Trial bites. Trial bites. <laughs> Dumbledore. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.